you can't really know what people did in the Paleolithic era because they didn't make a a lot of recipe books or cookbooks. And even if they did, you know, where are we going to get mastodon? You go back on time 100 years, there was hardly anybody had cancer, hardly anybody had diabetes, um, almost no children had autism. This dude, Ansel Keys, really got us off on the wrong track. And in fact, he literally started a massive nationwide medical experiment that we are still trapped in. So CO2 turns into an acid in our bodies as well. And exercising muscle hates acid. Those everybody should get out of their diet because regardless, you know, you don't have to have an allergy to those for them to be bad for you. They are bad for you. Basically, by feeding people really cheap food, you can create every chronic disease. You are listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. The OPP is brought to you by Natural Stacks, makers of 100% natural and open source supplements designed to help you live optimal. For more on building optimal performance into your life, visit naturalstacks.com. Brian Muncy is probably the smartest guy I know. Trust me, Muncy is the nutrition guy. Ryan Muncy's out there trying to make the world better for all of us. The Optimal Performance Podcast is bold, edgy, creative, entertaining, and epic. Ryan Muncy is my go-to guy. Ryan Muncy is the first guy I call. Making people's lives better. Ryan Muncy's an innovator. All right, happy Thursday, all you Optimal Performers. I'm your host, Ryan Muncy. Welcome to another episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast. This week, we have a very special guest for you. They're all special, but this week, we have Dr. Kate Shanahan, who is the author of uh, Deep Nutrition and is the director of the Los Angeles Lakers Pro Nutrition Program. So, uh, as you can infer from that introduction, we're going to talk about some really cool nutrition stuff. I'm really excited. The, the nutrition food scientist in me is, is ready to geek out on this for you guys. So before we do that, Dr. Kate, thanks for hanging out with us. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Really looking forward to this. Um, so for you guys listening, make sure you go to naturalstacks.com. You'll be able to see the video version of this as well as all of the links and resources that we're going to talk about today. Uh, anything that you want to pursue or go down that rabbit hole, so to speak, we'll have links so that you can do that. Um, of course, we'll have a link to uh, Dr. Kate's new book, Deep Nutrition, which I was lucky enough to get an advanced copy of. I've got all kinds of notes here that we're going to talk about for you guys today. Um, go to iTunes, leave us a five-star review, let us know how much you like the show. Uh, if we read your review on the air, we'll hook you up with free Natural Stacks products. And once again, I have forgotten to go get a review to read for you guys on this show. So I apologize for that. Keep sending us your reviews. I will double up next time. Um, and of course, if the OPP is helping you, if you enjoy it, please share it with the people in your life who will benefit from the things that we're talking about. I know you are going to learn a lot of stuff today. And I know that there will be people in your life that come to your mind as somebody who needs to know this information uh, when you hear Dr. Kate provide it and share it with us. So when you think about those people, share this with them and, and help us help and reach more people. Um, so Dr. Kate, let's, let's do this. You are the director of the <laughs> Lakers nutrition program. 
That's so cool. <laughs> well, they're pretty cool, you know, and I didn't realize this, but um, they're they're kind of fuddy-duddy, right? And you, because you, you would think that they're, they would want to be cutting edge and, you know, all kinds of high tech, everything. But when it comes to food, the trainer, Gary Vitti, he understands that, you know, there's really nothing good going to happen from messing with natural food and messing with just the way things used to be. And so what we did that resonated with him was we just emphasize, let's really get scientific about what it is that people used to do. And um, turns out that he's a real big foodie too, Gary Vitti. Um, so so are we and his dad is an even bigger foodie and um used to make like uh soups uh some old-fashioned stuff like uh chicken feed and he used to be slurping the bone marrow out of the lamb shanks and stuff so um and his dad is like this sturdy uh you know he's like in his 90s and still gardening and stuff like that so nice nice (laughs) so what were some of the biggest changes that you guys were able to implement when you started with the Lakers? So in terms of the content of the food, well, well, first of all, just like they, um, the, the, where we were feeding them, right. Cause they, when we entered into this, they did have a, a chef at the facility. Um, but she was doing, um, not as much meals as, as she's doing now. Like she was just like, doing either breakfast or lunch, but now she's doing breakfast and lunch. And then we also got them fed on the plane. We got them fed in the hotel. So we expanded where we had the control over what they were eating. And then the what we took control over was um, taking away any of the bad oils. So when I say bad oils, I mean vegetable oils. These are the industrial, uh, industrially processed oils that they make margarines out of, uh, corn oil, cottonseed oil, canola oil, soy sunflower, safflower. There's six of them. And, um, and in your book, that's public enemy number one. We're going to talk about that yes. when we dive into deep nutrition. Yes, that is public enemy number one. Absolutely. Um, and we also started to just... Uh, incorporate more of the traditional um, things like, you know, the big thing that we did was the the bone stock, which is one of the four pillars of traditional cuisine that uh, we talk about in our book. So bone stock is basically just making soup uh, or gravy from the bones and the collagenous materials of an animal that you're already eating. So like when you have chicken, uh, you just make chicken soup. When you have turkey, you make turkey soup. When you have any kind of uh, cow, you save the collagenous part of the bones, and you can actually use that to make some really delicious reduction sauces. And this is the stuff that makes the uh, the steaks that you pay like fifty dollars for. They have that little drizzle of deliciousness over it. Yeah. That's made out of bone stock. I can see that there would be tremendous benefit for anybody, but especially when you're dealing with athletes who are playing you know, 82 games a year and they're on hardwood floor, their joints are taking a pounding. Uh, you know, did they see instant benefit in you know knees, ankles, hips? 
Well, you know, instant is a lot to ask, but actually we really kind of did uh, because uh, there was one example when um, Kobe had twisted his ankle playing against Atlanta. I think this was like 19, uh, 19, 2013. And um, he had really a lot of swelling right away, but we got him two bowls of this bone stock soup at like two in the morning from the hotel because we'd had it pre-made. And, uh, he had been at last time he had an ankle sprain that was like this bad. He had been out for six weeks, but after getting this bone stock and the rest of the stuff that we do, which is, uh, you know, a lot more veggies, um, with the antioxidants, it, we, he got the inflammation under control much more quickly and he was actually playing again in uh, less than two weeks. Wow. That's yeah, really, cool. it's really incredible. So another big thing that we do though, is because we don't, um, say you can't have butter, we we don't disallow natural fats, it enables them to enjoy their vegetables more. And, and that's a huge thing because a lot of these guys come into the NBA from backgrounds where they were basically brought up on um, you know Gatorade and Snickers bars and don't know the difference between celery and broccoli, right? So they, they really don't have a lot of a repertoire in terms of their likes and dislikes. And so the chef needs all the yummy tools that she can get access to um, to make them enjoy her food, which they do. They just love it. Like she, that's the number one thing. A lot of guys don't really even know why they're eating this good food. Um, they just know it's the best that they've had in their lives. <laughs> yeah, and and I know what the Lakers have been doing has been well documented. I know CBS did a, an article on it a, a year or two ago. Um, you know, I've heard about it on some other podcasts. And we've had a former NFL player, uh, Eddie Williams, on our podcast, and, and he talked, you know, in, in a frustrating and alarmingly detailed manner of, you know, the way that the training table is what they call it in football, but the way that was set up and, and the, the foods that are, I don't want to say recommended because I don't think that's a strong enough word, I guess, so strongly recommended for the players to eat based on whether or not the coaches wanted them to gain weight or lose weight. And, you know, the, the types of foods, it's, it's just, it's so frustrating to see what's being, you know, taught and led. And, and it's, it's, it's a great, uh, it's just, it just makes me happy to see that, that people like you and, and the Lakers are, are moving uh, in this way. And, and that's going to trickle down. I mean, I know Kobe is a great example post NBA career is, you know, he's taking a role in, you know, uh, helping other people improve their choices and, and their health through, you know, food recommendations. Yeah. And that's, you know, one of the reasons that we wanted to work with the Lakers is because my husband, uh, it was like his mastermind to, to get us hooked up with them. And his thinking was, you know, um, good cooking is good, but it's kind of like homey. It's not really sexy. It's not uh, something that makes, you know, Sunday night news headlines and stuff. But if you get sports heroes to eat well and you get them excited about good food, then exactly what you said, the trickle down. And, you know, the sad thing is we, he did this, he tried, that was our tactic because the first tactic was try to communicate with physicians and health professionals. And that was an utter failure because we are trapped inside this like mentality of nature doesn't know better 
technology is the answer. And that has affected our our uh, thinking on nutrition, right? You know, all this happened after World War II when um, Ansel Keys, and this is something that we talk about in the book and you, it might be something you had questions about, but um, this dude, Ansel Keys, really got us off on the wrong track. And in fact, he literally started a massive nationwide medical experiment that we are still trapped in. If, if you're still listen, listening to like the government advice and if you still believe that polyunsaturated fats are, are better than saturated fats, you're in that medical experiment. And mm-hmm. that medical experiment has been a success in, in terms of like experiments want to have outcomes, right? And show you something exciting. Well, this experiment has shown that you can, if you want to, create any chronic disease by eating these polyunsaturates and including a lot of carbs in your diet, basically by feeding people really cheap food. You can create every chronic disease. And um, so, yeah, so that's, it's been a successful experiment because we have great, you know, amounts of data showing that. Unfortunately, the cost has been astronomical. You know, it's like our health expenditures are the biggest part of our GDP now. And people are being born into this experiment and having um, their lives changed because of it in, in ways that, you know, we want people to understand so that they can get out of the experiment and start living a real life again. Well, and that's exactly who our listener base is. It's, it's the, the person who is aware of this and, and taking their health and, and their future into their own hands. And as you said, getting out of that experiment. Um, so I think now is as good a time as any to kind of leave the Lakers conversation and go into your book, uh, Deep Nutrition. It'll come out. It's January 5th, right? Yep. January 3rd. 3rd. Okay. <laughs> um, I think we're going to publish this podcast on, on the 5th, and that's why I had that awesome. in my head. So um, to, to coincide with the, the relaunch of the book. So I want to get you to um, explain the premise of the book kind of at a high level, and then we'll go in and, and I've got, like I said, a bunch of questions. But before I let you do that, um, I just want to say to our audience what I said to you before we came on the show. And, you know, my degree is food science and human nutrition. I, I'm a nerd when it comes to this stuff. I get so excited when I see new nutrition books that that's just what I like to read for my own personal pleasure reading. And I, I kind of call this like the, the, the townspeople of the boy who cried wolf, where, you know, I, I've gotten my hopes up so many times that. Uh, and been let down that that I almost don't get excited anymore about new books uh, in the nutrition realm. Yours is not one of those books. Yours is phenomenal. As soon as I saw the cover and, and you're talking about you know why your genes need traditional foods and digging into it, it it's a phenomenal book. So for you guys listening, um, I, I would highly encourage you to to pick up this book. Um, and and now we're going to go through a lot of the stuff that's in it that will kind of pique your curiosity and give you guys some, some jumping off points to instantly be able to implement some of this stuff and, you know, see improvements in your daily life and in your overall health. Um, so, so Dr. Kate, deep nutrition, like the high level view, what's the premise here? So the premise is really simple. It's that nature knows best. And the problem it's such a simple concept. It seems like, well, yeah, duh. But the problem is we are disconnected from nature. 
And this is, you know, what I mentioned with the after the World War II, better living through technology and all that kind of mentality. It has permeated our way of living and our way of thinking about health and our way of thinking about food. And so in order to get back to understanding how do we tap into that real source of health, which I think everybody intuitively understands is nature. Um, How do we do that? How did we do that? Uh, What what we did was um, systematically take a look at what worked in the past. And the reason that we, you know, had to go back a little bit to the past and we can't just say, well, what's working now is because there's been so much of this this mentality shift, it's, it's shifted so much, so many different cultures, not just our own, away from tradition traditions that used to sustain us. You know, when you when you go to medical school, you don't really ever get to the underlying cause of health. You never, ever hear what makes people healthy. And when I um, I got into it because I had my own medical problem and I couldn't walk for a couple of years because I had a, a, what I determined. I mean, I was never really given a diagnosis, but what I figured out was probably it was some kind of a virus. And just by um, radically changing my diet, I, uh, I went from not being able to walk at all to being completely normal all over again. And I was an athlete. So, you know, it's demanding a lot of my joint, my joints, particularly that knee joint. That was the one that was the problem. But um, I, you know, it was mind blowing. It was really eye opening. And it was a, a, a moment of like one of those moments that changes your lives when I realized, you know what, I've been look, I have been kind of looking for this information on what makes people healthy mm-hmm. all along. And it, I didn't really ever have it in those words. And I didn't start from scratch in this endeavor either. I um, I really was impressed by a book that I came across called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration by a man named Weston Price, who's a dentist who lived in the 30s. And he also wanted to understand that fundamental question, what makes people healthy? So he traveled the world and visited 11 places where at that point in time, they were truly untouched or as you know, close to it as you can and analyze what they ate. And um, that got me started down the road of, okay, so yeah, that, that is the mindset that we want. We want to take a look at what people used to do. Uh, it's kind of similar, like one of the shortcut ways that we have of describing our diet and with the solution that we came up with is, uh, is like paleo plus because, you know, paleo is that same mentality of people used to be very healthy. We don't go back so far in time be, because uh, for a couple of reasons. One, because I don't feel like we really need to because it wasn't until about 100 years ago that all of these chronic diseases really became such a epidemic issue. You know, you know I mean, you go back on time 100 years, there was hardly anybody had cancer, hardly anybody had diabetes, um, almost no children had autism. Um, you know, these allergies, food allergies and autoimmune disorders were, you know, very non-existent. Um, so what were people doing a hundred years ago? And another reason is that you can't really know what people did in the Paleolithic era because they didn't make a a lot of recipe books or cookbooks. And even if they did, you know, where are we going to get mastodon or, you know, (laughs) whatever people used to eat all these, uh, many vegetables have gone extinct, extinct. So we, but we don't need to do that. We have, we realized that, um, in, the, the record, the culinary record was the record that we needed to look at to try and understand the recipe for building a healthy person. 
Well, and that's what really makes up your four pillars now, right? I mean, can you go through those for us? Yeah. So the four pillars are based on the the thought process was if there's something that every culinary um, tradition has around the world, all of them share it. If there's anything, then that's probably pretty important because it's a universal. It's what brought us here. And turns out that there were four of them. So that's what we call it, the four pillars. So it's fresh food, like uh, fresh vegetables, uh, food that has uh, been, uh, you know, brought to your table relatively unadulterated. And that even includes things like, you know, like cheese made from raw milk and raw milk itself. So so inherently that has a a seasonal and local component to it. Yes, very much so. And that's how a lot of folks got variety as well, because, um, you know, it was forced on them by the seasonality. Um, And the second pillar is fermented and sprouted. And so fermented being, uh, you know, like yogurt and even beers fermented, uh, chocolate is fermented. Fermentation preserves the food for the when you don't have canning and freezing and stuff like that that we do now with a harvest um they can preserve every, you can preserve anything that way even you know f- everything from fish to to um uh, all kinds of vegetables all kinds of meats um and sprouted is like the idea of just like sprouting uh, or partially germinating a seed partially not to f- turn it into a sprout but then to use it to cook and so like the original recipe for uh, beer or beer bread um, from the Egyptians, they talk about you know using wheat, but they sprout it too because uh, that's how you without that's how you save energy because you can just soak the seed for a day or two and it softens up and then you don't have to either you don't have to have a, a like turn it into flour to be able to eat it and you don't have to cook it so long so that's pillar two and then pillar three is meat on the bone and that's where we get our bone stocks and our bone broth the idea is that when you cook meat with the fat and with the bones and with the skin you preserve the nutrition in the meat and you also get nutrients that you wouldn't without those um connective tissue parts um, and then the fourth is is everyone's favorite, organ meats. Mm. So um, that includes things like liver, and you know people used to really truly eat head, nose to tail. That's kind of a movement now, um, and people used to do this because after you go through the trouble of you know raising an animal or hunting an animal, there's no way you're going to waste anything particularly if you know how to make it taste good. And so that's that's that was the first one to fall by the wayside when we industrialized our food chain and you know because organ meats particularly liver and even heart and stuff like this they are very full of nutrients and they are very susceptible to going bad. You know, you have to use them really quickly. Um and you also have to have a, a lot of culinary skill to be able to make them taste good. Um, I will second that because uh, mm-hmm. the the last time that a, a group went together uh, that I was a part of and bought, we, we split a cow, we each got a quarter of the cow, and nobody wanted the organ meats. So I, I very happily said, I'll take all of them. And I still, right. I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but all of the muscle meat is gone. I still have a few organs in my freezer that... I'm, I'm 
little scared to prepare because I don't know how to break down the kidneys. Uh, I've, I've had the heart um, and and the tongue I've had, um, but but you're right. The, there's the tongue is amazing. If you cook it right, it just it melts in your mouth. Um, <laughs> but but I'm still scared of those kidneys. So I have two cow kidneys in my freezer. That uh, yeah, one one day I'll work up the courage and, and get that done. Uh, yeah, I mean exactly. Like if they don't come to you like completely edibilized, you know, like the liver has this like skin around it that uh, we bought one time, and we're like, what the heck is this? <laughs> and uh, you know, it was like if you you're just like dealing with it like it's a science project all of a sudden. And um, when we first got chicken feet, I, I I didn't know you're supposed to cut off the nails. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we just put them in the, the stock and it was disgusting because the nails, you know, they're sitting in chicken poop and they right. absorb all those flavors. Yep. That's something I recommend. <laughs> so uh, admittedly, I've not been able to go cover to cover on the book yet. I, I've skimmed it. I've, I've checked some things out. Um, it's this if, fat. So. Yeah, it is. So <laughs> if, if you covered this in the book, I, I, I didn't see it yet. But you just mentioned chocolate as a fermented food. That's a new one for me. Uh, I'm a huge fan of fermented foods. We talk about it on the show all the time. Um, but I didn't realize chocolate was considered fermented. Yeah. So the uh, fruit. So you've got the berries, um, cacao seeds or something like that. And you take it off the tree. And actually, one of the first steps is just letting it sit in the sun for a few days and fer- ferment. And the flavors develop. And that's you know a whole science of chocolate making in and of itself. Now, the distinct there's there's a, a distinction to be made in fermented foods so that um, you can understand there are two different benefits. So when you ferment chocolate, it makes the flavor more complex. Um, it makes the nutrients more complex. So you get some nutrients that weren't there because the bacterial act, um, action um, b- does uh, a couple things. It, it actually creates new vitamins, but it also breaks down any anti-nutrients that were there. So that's super important. But the other the other kind or category of fermented food is where there's still living bacteria. And those are called live culture foods. Right. So that that's where like your yogurt and your kombucha and sauerkraut and um, kimchi and a lot of the vegetables um, come in to play where you're getting the probiotic benefits as well, which is a huge, huge uh, world of benefits that we are now really beginning to under, uh, understand and appreciate how important those bugs in our gut are. Now that we're all like in our 20s, 30s and 40s and we've taken antibiotics and <laughs> done yeah. all these things to change them. <laughs> well, so that's fascinating. Are there any other foods that would be considered fermented but may, may not have the, the live culture like a chocolate? Cheese? Yeah. Right. So, so cheese um, does increase the nutritional value of milk because it reduces the carbohydrate content. And it converts because uh, so uh, cheese or milk has lactose sugar and it say in a cup of milk, you'll you'll get about um, 10 to 11 grams of sugar and maybe five grams of protein. Um, so what the cheese making process does is it brings down the lactose content, the sugar content to, to near zero in the hard cheeses. And it does this by um, creating all kinds of nutrients, which are basically, you know, this is maybe a little gross, but the, it's the microbial bodies, right, that we're, we're eating. Right. Um, 
but they're living organisms and a lot of it includes um uh, essential fatty acids that they're creating and more protein. So cheese has much more protein than milk because the bacterial action has converted that carb into protein. Now, this is a question that I actually have for for later, um, but we can we can talk about it now. Um, I, I noticed looking through the book that the dairy was recommended quite a bit. You seem to be okay with it. Is there something that you know that we don't know? Um, and, and then and in, in regards to cheese specifically, okay, great, we've removed the lactose, there, there's no sugar or, or minimal sugar and carb content. You know, what about people with milk protein issues? Right. So what we, what I like to do, this is a very important concept and um, I think it, it, it really helps to get this across right up front. I recommend against no actual foods. I am for all actual foods. Um, the one thing that I recommend against is not food, but we eat a lot of it, and that's the vegetable oils. And this is kind of part of that like experimental diet that we've been on for the past 60 years, thanks to Ansel Keys. Um, those everybody should get out of their diet because regardless, you know, you don't have to have an allergy to those for them to be bad for you. They are bad for you for reasons that we explain that have to you know, do with oxidative stress. And we go into lots of detail in that in the book of what does that do and how does that exactly does that cause all these diseases, including things like Alzheimer's terrifying stuff. So, um, so that's what we recommend against. The other thing that we kind of caution about is carb, Con- carbohydrates like consumption mm-hmm. because we produce too much now in the modern food economy mm-hmm. we we grow a lot more of these uh, car- starchy foods and we produce a lot of sugar and sugar's addicting so we caution against the amount so we, most people have to cut it in half if not more um, but then the rest of the world the edible world is yours for the enjoyment, okay? Um, unless you have developed an allergy, a food allergy, right? So if you're allergic to peanuts, obviously don't eat peanuts. If you're <laughs> allergic to dairy or if you have celiac, you want to avoid those things. But um, what, I, what I like to think that I know, who's to answer your question, what do I know that, uh, that maybe your, your listeners may not know, is that your immune system doesn't behave normally while you're consuming a lot of carbohydrate and consuming these vegetable oils. And these vegetable oils are consumed in non-trivial amounts. By that, I mean like 30 to 50% of your daily caloric intake, if you're an average American, comes from these things. It's not because you cook with them. It's because the food manufacturers cook with them. And so that when you're getting microwave popcorn or salad dressing or dips or any of the like, you know, frozen meals, you're getting those things. Same when you go out to a restaurant, even the best restaurants, and this is one of the big tasks I have with the Lakers is getting the stuff out of the restaurant food. So your average restaurant sit-down meal is going to have somewhere between 30 and 50% of the calories coming from these toxic oils. And your immune system does not behave normally while you are eating this stuff. And it makes you prone to having all kinds of allergies, not just food allergies, but uh, animal, you know, dander and allergies of every sort are increasing in children. And there's, you know, we, there's a lot of talk about, well, 
gluten, we're getting more gluten allergies because gluten has changed. Well, have cats changed? Because there's more animal allergies than ever before. Um, has has Have birch trees changed because there's more birch, you know, pollen allergy than ever before? The answer is no. The issue is our immune systems have changed. And so that's what I, I want everybody to get their immune system working right. And so if, if it's working right, then you won't have to cut out, you know, any kinds of foods. Now, if you already have developed an allergy, obviously you have to cut those out. Will your immune system heal? Theoretically, it can, which is, um, you know, a, a whole other, the immune system is just like a fascinating thing. It's a fascinating system because it's, it is like an intelligent system. It is a learning system. It learns, it's learning every day and it's different every day, which is why people who are allergic to like say fish, shellfish, sometimes they can eat it. Sometimes they can't because their immune system is different every single day. That's a very good point. Um, I'm glad you mentioned it that way, that there are certain foods that some people can eat at some times and not at other times. Um, so speaking of, uh, learning and, and intelligence, you know, let's, let's talk about the brain for a minute. You, um, uh, on the very beginning of, you know, we, we, we said this earlier, you know, public enemy number one, vegetable oil. You've talked about it a little bit, um, but you also call it a brain killer in the book. Yeah. Chapter nine is the brain killer. So, yes. so talk about uh, some of the impact uh, that, that this would have on, on brain, you know, and, and brain health, brain performance. Your brain is the most susceptible to damage from these vegetable oils because it is 50% fat by dry weight, whatever that is. They, they, de they dehydrate brains and weigh what the stuff is that they're made of. So the non-water part. So, and um, your brain is also very um, dependent on polyunsaturated fats. So this is getting a little bit of the chemistry, but just to kind of um, uh, try to like um, bring up the concept, polyunsaturated fats are very special fats that are very fluid and our brain needs these fats because the communication that takes place between nerve cells is a physical communication. It's electro electronic and physical at the, the uh, part of the brain where we our nerve cells touch. It's called the synapse. And they communicate by physically exchanging these little bubbles, these little particles of chemical information called neurotransmitters. And they fuse their membrane, um, they're made from the cell membrane of the nerves. And so they have to be able to go from being flat on the edge of the membrane to becoming a little ball, travel over there and fuse really quickly. And so the polyunsaturated fats are um, very fluid. That's why uh, things that are high in polyunsaturates are oils and things that are high in the other kind of fat, the other big category, saturated fat, tend to be solid at room temperature. Right. So they're too stiff really for it to be um, present in any big degree in the brain. So the brain is made out of these polyunsaturated fats and the vegetable oils are polyunsaturated fats that have been processed in a way that they've been chemically damaged. And um, that's the problem. They're like these Trojan horses that get into our bodies, then they get into our brains, and they are molecularly abnormal. They're, the abnormality, the consequence of the abnormality means that the uh, brain it, that's made out of this stuff is going to be 
um, very susceptible to damage, a kind of chemical damage called oxidative stress. It's, it's kind of like fire is oxidation, right? It's very quick oxidation. If we could slow fire down to super slow motion, then we'd be talking about oxidative stress and we'd be, we'd be seeing parts of the brain basically catch on fire in slow motion. Or sort of like rust. I mean, rust is oxidation. Yes, exactly right. It's a so, slow motion oxidation process. So we, but we, we would talk about that as like wear and tear. Like that's a sign of cellular wear and tear. The more we see of that, the more that, that is, uh, that's accelerated aging and, and decreased function in the moment, right? Exactly, yes. So uh, accelerated aging. Um, and you know, vegetable oil you can think of kind of as like a liquid age. <laughs> So if you have it in your diet, you are going to be aging whatever part of the body is is going to be built out of those vegetable oils. And, and so that's where the link to things like Alzheimer's and, and all the other cognitive and even neurological diseases would come in. Yes, absolutely. And um, so, you know, um, there, there are very few people who research this stuff. But um, recently I ran into and spoke with some of the researchers who uh, did a human controlled trial where they they um, gave like a regular American diet with all this vegetable oil and one that was low in it. And they were studying how does this stuff affect the brain health, specifically the outcomes they were measuring were some things that are, you know, very rapid changes. Like if you're going to study Alzheimer's, it's going to take 10 years, but, um, uh, at least right. Right. Uh, but migraine and chronic pain, um, they studied those two things. Cause those are, you know, pretty quick. If you're a migraine sufferer and you go from having migraines every two days to once a month, that's a big deal. You only need to do that study for a month or two. And so they did a 12 week, week study and they found that the migraine sufferers, they're just this, this one change. And in this, just this time period, uh, their frequency of migraines dropped by like something like 70%. Wow. And migraines are a marker for oxidative stress in the brain. And oxidative stress in the brain is going to cause some kind of chronic neurologic problem. Going to, you don't know what it will be. It might be Alzheimer's dementia, it might be Parkinson's disease, it might be um, what um, um, the comedian Nanu Nanu, what he, he died of. Recently, oh, uh, Robin Williams. Robin Williams, yeah, uh, he had, um, I think it was Pick's disease or something like that. It was a Parkinson's-like um, syndrome, and it, it this, these are disorders of oxidative stress. It, it's what happens after a lifetime of consuming these vegetable oils. So let me ask you this: if if polyunsaturated fats are are that important, um, and we don't want to get them from vegetable oils, what would your preferred source or recommended source be? Right. Excellent question. So whole foods, um, they, they are present in seeds. They're present in, um, so, and when I say seeds, I mean like uh, botanical seeds, right? So that's going to be anything that you can grow something from. So that includes like soy and corn when they're whole, right? So soy oil and corn oil are bad because of the processing that they do. It damages the fats. Um, but if you just have corn and soy, you're going to get plenty of these things. And the fact that we now feed our animals a lot of corn and soy means that we're actually getting tons of these polyunsaturates when we just eat animal fat if it was not pasture-raised. Um, so, uh, and that's like a, another conversation about, well, okay, now we're getting into the balance, how much of these things, they are essential, we need them, but 
can you get too much? And is that bad? And um, that's another conversation. But the answer looks like it's, it, it is yes, which is why we try to advocate for uh, pasture raised animals as much as possible. But you get polyunsaturates from, you know, sunflower seeds from walnuts, any kind of nut is going to have some, any kind of grain is going to have some, lots of vegetables have some, but vegetables don't have much fat, you know, they're very um, non fatty, right? Uh, okay, very cool. So uh, let's let's go to public enemy number two, sugar. <laughs> um, so this is I, in full disclosure, and, I, and I've said this on our podcast before. I'm the only male in my family who is not diabetic. Uh, this was kind of the, the genesis of my foray into the rabbit hole that became studying nutrition and, and doing all that stuff. So um, you know, this one I, I love to talk about and. Uh, it's, it's in your book, again, um, in the very beginning of that chapter. Um, what, I'm trying to find it quickly. It's, what is it? It's chapter nine, right? Sickly yes, sweet. Sickly sweet. Right? So <laughs> yeah. um, I, I love the way you phrase this. That uh, It's one of the bullet points uh, on the opening of the chapter. The body knows sugar is toxic and releases hormones to regulate it. I've never heard it phrased that way, but it, it's so, like, it just hits you in the face when you say it. Like, you know, you it is toxic. Our body has a hormone, insulin, that is specifically there to make sure that there's never too much of this stuff in our bloodstream. I mean, what greater example or, or evidence do we need to say, like, this is one thing that we don't need too much of? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so what we, what I, um, found really helpful in my understanding of uh, sugar and how it can impact the body um, is a chemical term. Okay, so warning. <laughs> you can you can go as, as sciencey and geeky as you want. Um, if it's if it's too far, then I'll, I'll break it down and we'll put it on the show notes on the blog post in a way that people can can understand or, or follow up on. Okay, awesome. Well, so it's called glycation. And if this were Sesame Street, I'd have a big sign that says glycation <laughs> in pretty red colors. We, we, have, we have talked about AGEs and, and glycation. So you, you have the green light. Go, go as deep as okay. you want to go. Yep. So, yeah, so glycation is a process where sugar attaches itself to other molecules. Um and it's what makes sugar sticky. So if you've, um, you know, had a hard time opening the jelly jar after a while, that's because sugar has stuck to itself and created kind of a paste on that jelly jar. If you if you get sugar on your fingers or if you have a two-year-old and they get sugar all, all over their face after eating, you know, like a pear or anything, um, and it's sticky, it's because sugar chemically attaches itself to other molecules. And so uh, in our bodies, it chemically attaches itself to our proteins. And um, it does this in a totally um, chemistry-controlled fashion as opposed to enzyme-controlled fashion, right? So our bodies want to control everything with enzymes. And when there's chemicals that come in and do things on their own, that's bad. That's why we have these... Um, AGE receptors because they clean up the areas that have been damaged by sugar. And so, um, so 
that's why we need to keep sugar at a certain level, right? We do need some because there are cells in our body, like red blood cells, parts of the eye, and um, some parts of our brain cells that are um, not that don't have access to um, mitochondria. So they they um, they have to use sugar for energy. So we need some, and we need it to be in this really tight bandwidth between something around seventy and ninety milligrams per deciliter. Um, and, um, and that equates to like at any given time, about a teaspoon in your bloodstream at any given time. Um, then that gives you just a sense of if you have a soda, which has 16 teaspoons of sugar, that's 16 times what your bloodstream level should be. So this is why soda can make your, you know, your hormones go crazy. And so many people get started on the health path just by cutting out soda. Um, it's a really great first step to take. Um, so, so um, getting back to the glycation, so um, that process of just naturally, the sugar naturally adhering to other biomolecules is, is very damaging. And, and it, along with oxidative stress, are the two processes that eventually will kill us. <laughs> yep. you know, but we have a much greater fighting chance to live longer and healthier if we can control um, <laughs> mm-hmm. those, those two reactions and we minimize the extent to which they happen randomly in our body. Well, I'm so glad you said it that way and in, 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 in a, basically in a sentence like that because we've had two other guests, um, both in the health, nutrition, longevity realm who have, who have said exactly the same thing. If we want to live longer, minimize oxidative stress and, and AGEs. Um, so there you go. There's, there's the <laughs> fountain of youth, people. And, and exactly. <laughs> specific, specifically, don't drink or, or consume liquid age in the form of vegetable oils. Um, <laughs> right, you said something that, um, that, that kind of stuck out to me. Um, you said there are certain cells in our body that don't have access to mitochondria. And for those cells, like red blood cells, we would need some amount of sugar as, and that doesn't mean we need to eat sugar. That just means, uh, to clarify for our listeners, I know you know this, but any carbohydrate we eat is broken down into glucose. That's the usable form. So that doesn't mean you have to consume dietary sugar. It just means some kind of dietary carbohydrate. And, and I'm, we could get that from things like broccoli or zucchini or any vegetable. So you don't necessarily have to go straight to a starch, right? Perfectly stated. Yes. Okay. Very important point. And and along that note, you know, you said, you know, those cells don't have access to mitochondria. So, so does that mean that you would say any cell that has mitochondria, you know, obviously we know it can burn fat for fuel, but would you consider fat to be the, the primary fuel source or the, the optimal fuel source? For yes, those cells? absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I think there's a lot of evidence for that. And, um, one of the, the, um, the key pieces of evidence, I and mean, there's a lot of evidence, right? So one of the big pieces of evidence is, well, gosh darn, we store fat. We don't really store that much sugar, right? We store, our, our liver can store somewhere between, like a, in a small person, just 100 grams of starch. Um, and our liver is the primary storage deep 
deposit, the liver and the muscles have some too, but the liver shares it with the rest of the body, the muscles use it for themselves. Um, and uh, somewhere between, you know, 100 grams and maybe 800, um, which is anywhere between 400 calories and 3,200 calories. Um, so compare that to the fat that we store. If you are the average 70 kilogram male with uh, 10 to 12% body fat, you've got something like 100,000 calories of fat stored and it's just you know that alone i want to know where you found that average man just i i I don't know that the average man is 10 to 12 percent body fat (laughs) yeah right right this is back when uh, my early medical textbooks were written and you're totally right now the average female i know the female stats better the average female is 40 year old 40 years old Five foot uh, five and 160 pounds, which is um, overweight, well overweight, mm-hmm. unfortunately. So yes, the average person has many more thousands of calories stored in the form of fat, and you know other animals store fat and burn fat too. Like birds, right? They, they, these little bitty birds that can migrate from Alaska to South America, you know, and uh, they weigh like two, they weigh like two ping pong balls, and they're <laughs> they're burning fat the whole way. It's, it's a much more efficient fuel source. But the other thing that's um, interesting about the difference between burning fat and burning sugar is that burning fat produces less CO2. And CO2 is an acid, can be turned into acid, right? We've heard of acid rain. Uh, we've heard of the acidification of the oceans with the greenhouse gases. So CO2 turns into an acid in our bodies as well. And exercising muscle hates acid. That's what makes you stop. That's what causes failure when you're lifting something heavy or sprinting or something. Um, It's the acid building up. And um, because fat burning produces 30% less acid, that's that right there is another huge advantage, you know, particularly in the exercising world, but also in the brain. (laughs) Yeah. So, so in my head, I'm, I'm, as you're saying this, I'm thinking, you know, there's, there's a, there's a huge shift in endurance sports moving from being a sugar burner to, to being fat burners. Mark Sisson is one of the huge uh, proponents of this and leading that charge, and, and there are many others. Um, but as I'm thinking this, and then I'm like, oh, well, wait a minute. Dr. Kate is the nutrition person for the Lakers. <laughs> so you probably have some, at very least, anecdotal experience to you know show how work capacity or endurance or stamina not only in a game or in a session, but over the course of a season is improved by, you know, eating this way. Yeah. So we are trying to figure out how to collect the data in our analytics department. We're, we're right now in the process of trying to figure that out of like how to show the guys who are like more compliant with the program more here and interested in it, at doing it at home and stuff like that. Um, what kind of a differences are we seeing? Um, anecdotally, we I have, you know, just a lot of reports where people saying their mental focus is the thing that they really, really notice. Um, it makes a difference in that fourth quarter because, um, you know, the, if, if you're a sugar burner, your brain is one of the most sugar um, hungry organs in your body. Your brain and your muscles combined use the most sugar um, or almost all of the sugar that you have access to. And so if you're the better that you can burn fat, you're both in your brain and in your muscle, um, even in a highly mixed sport like basketball, where it's aerobic and anaerobic mm-hmm. exercise um, Great point. for 
yeah, so for all of that um, aerobic part, you want to be burning fat if it's possible, and you want your brain to be able to burn fat. And so, um, uh, so that the more that you're doing that, you can the better your your concentration is by the by the fourth quarter. And and that's that's what the first thing that people will, that they will tell me, and it, it gives them not just the concentration, but also like the confidence and um you know there's this whole central governor theory of sports performance where fatigue is all in the mind and if we can just convince ourselves that we're not fatigued we can do some amazing things and so that's where i think that you you see the the quickest and the most um the most exciting things happen because the the muscles, um, you, you know, you can train your muscles also, your fat, your slow twitch fibers and your mixed twitch <laughs> muscle fibers to to be more aerobic. But you're still, you know, that you're kind of up against a wall there genetically um, that that, um, you know, a lot of the more muscular guys have more fast twitch fibers and they're more glycolytic fibers and they're just going to be more sugar dependent in their muscle but their brain still can be a good fat burner uh, a famous laker lamar odom and his sugar addiction right <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly so um the gateway uh, drug two things on that if, if you guys need help collecting the data uh, i and natural stacks will volunteer to come help you guys with that <laughs> uh, second thing I want to know. Uh, with that said, what's in the uh, the water cooler during the Lakers games? Are they drinking Gatorade or are they drinking something else? <laughs> uh, Gatorade is their sponsor, um, so that is their official um, drink. <clears throat> and um, <laughs> <laughs> I see what you're yeah. saying. <laughs> but they also, uh, as human beings, need a lot of water. Okay. <laughs> All right, I got gotcha. you. So uh, let's let's go one more topic uh, from the book, and then we'll we'll wrap this up. Um, I want to talk about cellulite. There's a, a section in the back here. Um, I, I think it's really cool that you talk about this, and um, you know, there's there's a great image in the book. If you guys are watching, you can see this. Um, it says cellulite fat lacks adequate collagen support. So. I think that that's a great image and it's a great picture because it both tells us maybe the cause and a solution for cellulite. Yes, I could show you some now if I was wearing my bikini. Oh, darn. <laughs> um, but yeah, so cellulite is um, something that uh, has the, the collagen support is what prevents cellulite. And that also, like everything, is partially genetic and partially dietary. So um, famously, um, African-Americans and Asians tend to hold their weight better, and it's because they have thicker uh, layers of connective tissue. And the connective tissue in their skin is thicker, and the connective tissue that forms those little struts in that image, because every you know centimeter or so, um, that you know about the length of what you see when you see a cellulite dimple those dimples are there because there's not enough of those struts to keep the whole thing smooth looking so that when you have 
not enough of them, there's like little bits of uh, fat will bloop out or, you know, dimple inward and just look unattractive. Um, But the way that vegetable oil promotes cellulite is because it it is a pro-inflammatory, you know, it's, it's liquid age. It's also oxidative stress in a bottle and it creates inflammation reactions that will degrade the cellulitic struts. So they actually, like when I was talking about fire earlier, they will actually burn down the areas of your fat that have the cellulite support so that you don't have as much. And there is an interesting study uh, for some statistics that before um, Ansel Keys uh, told everybody to start eating vegetable oil um, in 1946, uh, biopsies from women were composed of like 4% of one of these polyunsaturated fatty acids called linoleic acid. So it was 4 to 6% was the range there. And um, as of uh, the turn of the, the millennium, 50 years later, Biopsies were composed of something like 15 to 16 percent of this one polyunsaturated fatty acid. Wow. That's so, crazy. Yeah, it's it's like disgusting, really. I mean, it's changing the composition of our body, and our fat is literally more oily. You know, so it it also needs more support. So. I've seen children with cellulite, children with normal body weight, like, mm-hmm. you know, you pinch their little tummies and it dimples. It's That's not supposed to happen. No. No. That's really, that's that's crazy. Yeah, uh, it's changing our body composition. I, I, I mean, I can't help but notice that that also coincides with, you know, the time period in, where, you know, the, the low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet was predominantly recommended by the powers that be. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, we didn't really go that low fat. We just changed the nature of our fat, right? Because right. I think, according to the statistics, the the average American, even though we're supposedly eating low fat, we're still getting you know forty percent of our calories from fat, which isn't hugely different than what it was at the turn of the century in farmers who you know were farming, so they also ate a good amount of starch. Um, but um, you know, it, to me, it's not so much the quantity of the fat it's the quality of the fat because if we're not poisoning our bodies we can do well with a wide range of macro um you know different macros right because famously there's um people that uh, they're called the katavans i don't know if you've talked about them but they live on like potatoes or something um but they live a long time right but they're also very short so there's a lot less protein in their diet they probably are more sugar burning um but you know so there's there's a there is some physiologic um consequence to having less protein and more carb in your diet but um as far as chronic diseases you still do very well as long as you're avoiding those nasty vegetable oils and getting a lot of exercise and the other stuff that they no doubt do which is you know they don't probably snack every five minutes and (laughs) just intermittent fasting has a huge benefit on your fat burn yeah yeah, and that's another thing that I always try to point out to people is, is the availability, the presence of food that we have now. And, and as you said, just compare it to 100 or 150 years ago. You don't have to go all the way back to the Paleolithic age. Right, exactly. And, you know, and, and that frees you up too, to enjoy whatever cuisine you happen to be familiar with or a fan of. And it also and brings the natural variety like by by that i mean around the world people eat a 
pretty restricted uh, number of animals and plants. Mm -hmm. But it tastes very different because we have different spices and different ways of cooking them. And um, that's what I, I, I just want to encourage people to explore and be adventurous. And, and it's kind of hard to do that if you're worried about, oh, is this on the list of approved foods? And I, I just really want to encourage people to, you know, really just focus on the one thing that is not food and get that out of their diet and enjoy the rest as long as you don't have food allergies. Awesome. Dr. Kate, I, I, we're going to let you go. Uh, we got two questions that I still need to ask you. Um, but so for you guys listening, here's the book, Deep Nutrition. Pick it up, read it, enjoy it. You will not be disappointed. Um, Dr. Kate, where can people find you and or the book? So my website is drkate.com, D-R-C-A-T-E.com. And um, the books are going to be in bookstores everywhere and also on all online retailers. And you can head to my website and check out uh uh, it's maybe the easiest way is uh, drcate.com. Okay. Sign up. And, and we'll have links to all that on the blog post for this podcast. So you guys can just one click and go grab uh, the book or one click and go visit the website. Um, before we let you go, Dr. Kate, you have to answer the question that all of our <laughs> guests answer. Uh, we want to know your top three tips to live optimal. Sure. Okay. Well, one and two, I think we've already talked about. So I guess three would be um, just, and it sounds smarmy, but you know, just make it easy, right? I was going to say find your joy, but just make it easy, right? If you're tired, sleep. If you don't like doing a certain kind of exercise, find another one. If, uh, if you're, don't have time to eat, you know, a healthy lunch, don't eat lunch. <laughs> right yeah no i like Think, it focus like on it. dinner <laughs> so, so to to clarify number one was uh no vegetable oil and number two was restrict your carbs you know no okay. limit your carb intake okay yeah and number three is make it easy all right beautiful <laughs> uh this has been a blast thank you so much for hanging out with us and for you guys listening make sure you go to naturalstacks.com you can see the blog post for this we'll have uh, tons of links. I wrote down a bunch of notes, uh, a bunch of studies, and all kinds of stuff to, to share with you guys so you can go down those rabbit holes. Um, go to iTunes, leave us a five-star review, let us know how much you like the show, and again, share the OPP with anybody you know who will benefit from uh, the things that we're talking about. I know Dr. Kate said a lot of stuff on this show that you said, oh, I wish I could say that to somebody or share that with somebody or, or I wish so-and-so would hear this. Share it with them, let them know. And uh, let's let's reach more people, help more people, uh, and continue to to move this movement where we want it to be. So, thanks thank so much, Ryan. It was a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Dr. Kate.